0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics. For teachers, students, and citizens.
1: Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, to our first TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar of the new academic year. Saturday I always look forward to, uh, to get started on our our great conversations. Our Saturday webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I'm associate professor of political science and history and uh, co-chair, co-director of the Ashburg Scholar Program uh, for undergraduate students here at Ashland University. Uh, The theme of our webinar series this year is Great American Debates, and if you happen to be joining us for the first time, welcome, Um, but the point of this is to pull together some very thoughtful, knowledgeable uh, scholars, and we happen to have two very good ones today um, to, to have a conversation about um, about a particular debate. Uh, and as always, we encourage others, if you're joining us to participate in our conversation by submitting questions in the chat feature, and as always, we'll, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. And I encourage my panelists, by the way, uh, joining us, if you see a question pop up and, and you want to go right to it, feel free to do so. Um, you don't have to wait for me to, 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 to bring up a question from the in the chat feature. Um, in the next week you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation and that will also include a link to the archived video and audio of today's uh, program. So uh, as always we're we, we, we with what we do uh, at Ashbrook and teachingamericanhistory.org we we try to draw our conversations or base our conversations on original documents And a lot of the documents we'll be using this year in in our webinar series uh, are drawn from two new volumes produced by the Ashbrook Center. We're producing a number of volumes uh, with collections of great documents. Um, And I think most of those, if not all of them, are available uh, through uh, on the uh, teachingamericanhistory.org website uh, in electronic form. Um, uh, Today, I think we happen to be drawing uh, from one of the volumes uh, um, that I believe was produced for West Point, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe Rob can say more about that, uh, one of our uh, panelists today. But uh, the the debate that we're focusing on today is is, uh, Patriots versus Loyalists, and I'm happy to introduce uh, two very thoughtful scholars joining, joining me today. Uh, Rob McDonald of the United States Military Academy and Todd Estes of Oakland University. Good morning gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for being here, especially on a Saturday morning. Um, so um, this is the first webinar of the year. I'm always you know thinking about how do we start this how do we start this 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 uh, not just this new theme but this particular topic so Patriots versus loyalists, that could, that means we could talk about just about anything, right? I'm not sure what, where to go from there. So maybe my first question, or maybe a question, or a couple of questions that hopefully you'll help us think through uh, at some point today is, um, what do we mean by those terms, patriots versus loyalists? Uh, Were those terms that, um, that, uh, that both sides used to describe the other side, or those terms that were used at all uh, during the Revolutionary Period to describe themselves? And maybe a related question, um, did the meaning of those terms change during the course of the Revolution? That is, did, it, did, did what it meant to be a Patriot or a Loyalist change um, at all during the Revolutionary Period? But in general, I guess maybe you could help us work through the arguments of both sides. What, what were the kinds of things that Patriots were arguing for Um, and what were the kinds of arguments that loyalists were making, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially on the terms themselves were those terms that were actually used during the time or those terms, those labels applied by historians at a later point or, but of course, as always gentlemen, uh, feel free to ignore my questions and talk about anything you want to talk about, (laughs) which is probably much more interesting. So anybody want to start with, with thoughts on this or, or anything else related to the topic, please feel free. I'll let you go first.
0: Okay. That sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> I think. Um, well, I guess one of the things about patriots and loyalists, I mean, I, I think those terms were used a little bit in, the, in, in that day. However, they, they really have come to become uh, sort of defining terms that have been used by historians and subsequent people in thinking about the, the founding of the American Revolution, and they've been defined in specific ways. But I, one of the things that I've always found most fascinating about this whole question of loyalists and loyalism is that the presumption today, and I think for really pretty much every uh, every decade since the American Revolution, has been that the loyalist position somehow needs to be explained because it's abnormal and because it's strange and because it's illogical. <laughs> that the idea of staying loyal to Great Britain and loyal to the crown uh, was somehow obviously the position that lost out in the revolution. And so no one asked the question, why did people become patriots? Why did people support the American Revolution, why were people in favor of independence? But they do ask, and I think for generations, historians have asked the question, what would make someone a loyalist? Why would you stay a loyalist? What was inside the loyalist mind, if you will, that kept them loyal to the crown even very, very late and then into the uh, revolution itself? And so I think one of the things we need to do is is go back and understand that loyalism at the time, in the 1760s (coughs) and 70s, I think you can make a very good case that that made really good sense that was a logical position. It was rational. Uh, It certainly was a realistic position. And it was also in many ways a kind of moderate position, certainly compared to the patriots and what they were trying to do. And so that's not trying to explain away or defend loyalists necessarily, or to be a partisan in favor of the loyalists. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think it's important to try to go back and understand what it was about the loyalists that would make someone a loyalist, because that's that's often presumed that loyalists were strange people and we can sort of write them out of the story of the American Revolution. But by sheer numbers, by impact, by wealth, by land holdings, by office holdings, and things like that, the loyalists were pretty prominent people and pretty important people. And I think to uh, explain away their behavior or write them out of the story and say, well, they're not that significant or uh, whoever was a loyalist was strange, why wouldn't they be patriots? I think really not only misunderstands the the history of the American Revolution as it happened, but I think it also does a real disservice to our, it's, it's very ahistorical thinking, I guess I would say. It sort of uh, in, in, implies our position now of trying to figure out, why would you be a loyalist and not a patriot? Don't you know that the patriots created the revolution, declared independence, fought the war, established the United States of America? That's the right position. Why would you be against that? And I right. think that again, sort of rips the loyalist out of the context of the time. So hopefully, what we'll try to do this morning in our conversations and questions and through these readings is to try to figure out what made people loyalist and what they believed in, but also to try to understand that that was not a strange choice or strange behavior at the time. Yeah, I think yeah. I, uh,
2: what, what, what Todd is saying about contextualizing uh, these people is, is really important. And it's worth noting, I think, that all of these documents that we're reading um, for our, our gathering this morning come from the year 1774. So, I think in 1774, all of these people would describe themselves not as patriots or as loyalists, but as Englishmen. And I think that comes through loud and clear in the documents. There's a great deal of agreement um, between these people who will subsequently become loyalists and subsequently become patriots. Uh, sure, uh, you could look at Thomas Jefferson's summary view and, and certainly um, see the direction in which he's heading. I mean, he's sort of on the vanguard of of the movement for some sort of separation from Great Britain, um, but then when you look at the the letter by Governor Morris talking about you know the riotous mob, he sounds you know to our ears like he should be a, a loyalist, but in fact he's going to become a patriot as well. And then when you look at the the two gatherings um, where uh, toasts were given, um, you know the first is a group of loyalists who are um, trying to celebrate the anniversary of the repeal of the Stamp Act, which had occurred eight years earlier, so that they could ignore the imposition of the Intolerable Acts, which had occurred just a couple of months earlier. Um, but in many respects, their toasts overlap significantly with those that were given at the banquet in honor of the um, convening of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Um, I think, you know, once you do declare independence, you begin to see uh, names applied to these two separate groups of people, Probably not patriots and loyalists, though. I mean, I think the people we would call patriots would describe the loyalists as Tories, and the people we would describe as Tories would describe the patriots as rebels. So as Todd pointed out, these are terms that have kind of you know, come on into their own in, in subsequent decades as historians sort of look for neutral terms to apply to these two groups.
1: And, and Rob, can I just for clarification, so the, those terms would have been tossed around much more around 1776?
2: And I, yeah, I mean, you, you, you certainly do see people describing each other as rebels and Tories. Um, and, and I think you, you would find people uh, who are on the patriot side, they would describe themselves as patriots. Yeah. And sure, loyalists would describe themselves as being loyal to Great Britain. Right. But, but I think it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that um, certainly in 1774, the one thing that all of these people could agree upon was that uh, Great Britain was the richest. And the most powerful, and uh, not coincidentally, the freest nation on the planet. Right. And, and so the real debate is, you know, can we within this this great British framework um, recover the liberties that that we believe have been injured, you know, since the end of the French and Indian War? Yeah.
1: No, that's really well put. Now, I'd love to push this question you've raised further. That the, the, seems like the central question. Uh, especially uh, in 1774 and in the years around there, is what does it mean to be an, an Englishman, right? I'd love to push that question further because that will also get us into that that, that realm of what Todd was suggesting about what, what were the arguments that the Tories, as, the, as they were later called, so um, the Loyalists, uh, what were the arguments that they were actually making? And, and um, I was surprised when I first dug into these, um, some of the arguments of the Loyalists, Um, several years ago at at, at the fact that they do make arguments in favor of remaining loyal to an empire, especially, right? They talk about a lot of times about the importance of the empire and and how important it is as an Englishman to be tied to the greatest empire in the world that is doing all these great things. But we can hopefully get into some of those arguments in much more depth because again, I'll stop talking here in a second, the stereotype I was always taught growing up was that the, that the the loyalists were just sort of they didn't really think that deeply about the issues they were just sort of bound by tradition. Um, uh, and, and that led to their loyalty to the government that they were born and raised into, but I think it's much deeper than that. Um, but, I, but I love the I love the label of Tories, uh, Rob, as you mentioned, because after 1776. That's an that that's an older term, right? Tories were traditionally supporters of the king, stretching back to the English Civil War. So, does that does that reflect a turn in the mind of, of American patriots, moving away from sort of blaming Parliament and and toward moving toward toward you know being more anti-monarchical and blaming the king? Um, would that help explain why the the label of Tory came to be so prominent uh, after 1776? But
2: I, I think so, yeah. I mean, um, we, you know, we should keep in mind that the, the political terms of the day um, that were bandied about principally were Whigs and Tories, and I think that all of the people um, whose writings we see represented here um, in these four documents would consider themselves among the Whigs. You know, the Whigs traditionally um, had been uh, opposed to the centralization of power, and um, they certainly, on the question of America, uh, had been you know more amenable to the arguments coming from the American colonists regarding uh, their rights and their liberties uh, and their grievances against British imperial policy. Um, and so, you know, after independence, to to label uh, a group of, of people Tories, you know, it was a real insult because they, yeah. they were they were with the really bad guys back in Britain. Um, and it's kind of interesting, I and mean, when you look at the the toasts that are given. In celebration of the uh, convening of the Continental Congress, um, you know there there are a couple of ones that reference the British Parliament. One is the tenth, and and the person who raised his glass said, "May the cloud which hangs over Great Britain and the colonies burst only on the heads of the present ministry." (laughs) (laughs) That would be the Tories. That would exclude the Whigs. I see. Yeah, I, I was
1: thinking of that the the, the letter, too, uh, that Jefferson later wrote to Henry Lee uh, uh, explaining the, the the mindset, where he uses the phrase about the American mind, and he says, all Whigs thought alike, right? All American Whigs thought alike. So that's a that's a great connection, uh, a great point that you raised.
0: Yeah, I think also, if I can just jump in, I think, um, as Rob said, I think people on both sides – would have considered themselves clearly in the Whig camp. I mean, that's how they thought. That's how they would identify themselves. But there was a clear struggle in the 1760s and 70s over precisely what that term meant. Uh, And, of course, it's been argued by a number of scholars who analyze intellectual history and these trends of the revolution that what the patriots were actually in the process of becoming, of course, uh, was Republicans, small-R Republicans. Uh, And that was the trajectory of their thought. So they were really pulling away from the loyalists, who it could be argued, were Whigs before 1763 and and well afterwards, uh, but at a time when patriots uh, were turning away from that and making that, that move toward republicanism. And that sort of left them behind and left them adrift and left them in many ways profoundly confused about what what was happening uh, in their country, in the colonies, and in the, the British Empire. And as, as Rob noted, and as you noted as well, uh, you know, after not just um, the outbreak of the war, but particularly with the Declaration of Independence, it was no longer patriotic, if you will, to be a loyalist. I mean, at that point, you were part of the opposition, part of the enemy. And because of that, I think the term Tories came into use uh, as a very negative, very pejorative term. And the um, and that's when you begin to see, again, the uh, abuse toward loyalists, um, the, the seizing of their property, the flogging and the beatings and the tarring and featherings and the uh, attacks on them, not only in person physically, but in the newspapers as well, to really just destroy loyalism as a legitimate position. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was, again, the loyalists, in many ways, they were profoundly confused by this because they kept thinking, wait a minute, we're, we're all in this Whig tradition. What happened to you? Um, and so the loyalists were asked the question, what are these, what are our fellow colonists doing? Uh, how mm-hmm. do you explain the, the patriots? So I think, again, the timing is critical, um, and as Rob astutely noted, all these documents come from 1774, which is late in the revolutionary struggle, but it's obviously before the breakout, the outbreak of the war, um, before Payne's Common Sense, and obviously before the, the Declaration. So we're at particular points here, and I think the chronology becomes increasingly important as we go from 1774 into 75, into 76, in thinking about the context of the revolution but also about uh, the course of loyalism and and patriotism as well there's Mm
2: -hmm. there's a really great book that uh i think i've actually heard todd recommend i know i've recommended it many times um, myself but it's it's by uh the late author pauline mayer Mm -hmm. who's a historian at mit and uh her first book was called from resistance to revolution and if i'm not mistaken her final chapter's title is uh the republican transformation and you know exactly as todd says i mean uh people had been holding out hope, uh, people you know, on all sides of this debate in America had been holding out hope that, if nothing else, the king would put a stop um, to what they considered to be the tyrannical actions and edicts of the British Parliament. And when it becomes clear that that's not the case, those who are willing to take the plunge um, and support uh, independence, well, they have to repudiate the king. Um, I guess the question is, were they Republicans, um, really, before they had to take the step of repudiating the king? Or did the step of repudiating the king essentially force them into becoming Republicans? And I think, you know, for different groups, uh, for different people, um, there might be different answers. Just just looking at, not being a, an expert on Gouverneur Morris, but just sort of the flavor and the tone of, of, of the document suggests that perhaps he was more comfortable with the British system of monarchy and aristocracy um than, say someone like Thomas Jefferson, right
1: mm-hmm. so, so this is a this is a really interesting distinction that we're sort of moving toward and and perhaps hopefully going to work through this well, Todd mentioned that uh, in many ways both sides would have considered themselves sort of the true heirs of of sort of Whigism, right in that English sense. Um, what uh, um, I guess maybe my question is, what's how did they see their? Let me put it this way, maybe. So you have the Glorious Revolution in England in in uh, 1688, and and the Whig way of thinking about things, if if I understand history correctly here, emerges victorious in a certain sense. That is, you still have a monarchy. It's not necessarily republican, in the sense that Americans think of republicanism, and, and as Rob is pointing out, but. But, but there is a, the, the, the Whig way of thinking about things that emerges from the Glorious Revolution is one where the, 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 the king is still important, has a significant role to play, but, but there are sort of constitutional restraints placed on the king. Am I understanding this correctly? And I'm, wondering, I'm curious about what the split might have been among those who considered themselves Whigs, or what was the difference between American Whigs and English Whigs? And if, if that doesn't make sense, just ignore it and, again, talk about whatever you want. I'm, not, I'm trying to think this through. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. tough question.
0: Well, I mean, I'll just jump in quickly, and then I want to hear what Rob says about this. I mean, I think in many ways that's a question that the colonists rarely had to think about prior to 1763 and the end of the Great War of Empire. I mean, they considered themselves part of the British Empire, um, certainly very, very loyal to the, to the empire. They identified as, as Englishmen, as British. Uh, they, they took enormous pride, certainly, in everything the British Empire was accomplishing uh, in, in Canada against the French and, and uh, Native Americans. And, um, and then certainly with uh, the, the post-war um, hubris of 1763 and the great achievements. it's really only at that point when the British began to say, well, we've got to rethink the empire now. It's much broader, much vaster, far more expensive to maintain. There's still the nine years of, of war debt that we have. This is going to require some real thought about what the empire means. What does it mean to be in the empire? And what does it mean to be, in fact, British? And I think it's at that time that the colonists, for the most part, are, are sort of forced into thinking about, well, what, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to be a colonist, to be loyal to the king? What's the relationship between our local legislative bodies and parliament? What duties do we own or do we owe to, uh, to Great Britain? What rights do we have? And so I think really none of that is an issue that very many people talk about or think much about prior to 1763 because they don't have to. And it's really only in the years after that, and especially in the years after 1765 and the Stamp Act, that the colonists began to go through really a decade of very intensive self-examination. And at the end of that, then they make the decision obviously that they would be better off independent, which Mm -hmm. you know undoes a century and a half of Anglicization, and a century and a half of becoming more and more enmeshed in the British Empire, uh, in trade and commerce and manners and speaking and law and politics and everything else. And so it really forces them to, to define what they believe to be, what what they think it means to be part of the empire. And then, of course, after 1776, they have a, a second and related problem of defining, well, okay, now that we're independent, what does it mean to be an American? Right. And how much of that American identity is going to be based on things they took with them out of their earlier british identities so i think these are fascinating questions but um i would suggest they really don't get thought much about or at least written much about until um kind of
2: push comes to shove in the years after the great war for empire oh well, that's great yeah i, I really agree with uh, what todd is saying and I, I i would just extend it i mean both todd and i have done most of our work not in the American war for independence, uh, strictly speaking, but in the 1790s. And right. I mean, I think that's, that's when this question of what does it mean to be an American? And, you know, we knew what we're, we were, what we were united against, but, but what mm-hmm. do we really stand for? I mean, I think that, um, you know, becomes a, a primary concern, but going back in time a bit, uh, you know, let's say the 1763, when the French and Indian war comes to a close, um, it's, It shouldn't be surprising for us as Americans to understand what Parliament was up to. Um, During the course of this this war, the Seven Years' War, as it was known globally, Britain's debt doubled. Um, And in the final year of the war, in 1763, we know that Great Britain spent 384,000 pounds on the American colonies and received in revenue from the American colonies only 1,800 pounds. There is a, a tremendous imbalance and, um, and the British people were, uh, in general, much more heavily taxed than the American people. So it's not a crazy thing that members of parliament would try to pay for this, this last expensive war um, by turning toward the American colonies. The irony, of course, is that by doing so and by ignoring some of their own basic principles about the importance of representation um, to people who are going to be taxed, um, the British set in motion a series of events that are going to yield yet another war that's even more expensive and that this time around is not going to have a favorable outcome for them. So that, mm-hmm. that great continental empire that they had achieved during the French and Indian War, um, you know, a great portion of it is going to be lost in the war for independence. Yeah. Oh, that's
1: – that's that's really – that's fascinating. It, so the <laughs> – so both sides, you can see how the split starts to emerge over, as you put it, Rob, on the one side, the British overlooked, and you do see these arguments coming out, especially between 1763, but I'd say really I see them prominently in the early 1770s. The fact that the British violated one of their sacred principles of British constitutionalism, which was representation, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the, the the that aspect of Whiggism as well that emerged out of the out of the 1680s, but. So you do start to see those arguments emerge, mostly on the side of the Americans. They're violating a, a, a sort of sacred, traditional, what they would often call a natural right of Englishmen, right? A natural right of Englishmen to be represented and not de- be deprived of their property through taxes without re- without representation. Uh, but on the other side, as you point out, um, the the British, um, the English, had strong grounds to argue that the American colon or the col- British colonists in America. Had been more than happy to accept the protection and the aid and the and the money of the British during the Seven Years War, as you put it, and it was only fair and just that they would be willing to repay some very small portion of that, right? I mean, the, the my understanding is the initial attempt to recover some of this through taxes was was very non-invasive um, and and very minuscule in a certain way.
2: Thoughts on this, or my- well, I'll just I'll just interject that uh, you know. The supreme irony is perhaps that the British would end up losing the empire that they had gained as a result of um, their efforts to tax the colonists, but maybe a secondary irony is that their efforts to tax the colonists were almost all unsuccessful. I mean, the amount of revenue that was raised as a result of the Stamp Act or the Townsend Acts was absolutely minuscule, um, in part because the colonists stuck to their guns and saw with such clarity... um, the the sacred principle that there should be no taxation without representation. I mean, to take it back to the point you were trying to direct us to a couple of minutes ago, Chris, the Glorious Revolution of 1688 um, established, among other things, you know, through John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, which served to help justify, you know, deposing James II and installing William and Mary on, on the British throne. He said, "Why do we have government in the first place? We have government to protect individual rights, and that you know chiefly these are life and liberty and property and you know what do you call it when someone reaches into your pocket without asking and they take your money that's That's stealing so you know taxation without representation uh, is exactly the opposite of what the of, of what any government should do um, yeah. and, and and I would say too, I'd push back a little bit on on something that you seem to imply um, when you said that the colonists were happy to accept um, British help and aid uh, in, in the prosecution of the French and Indian War. There's truth to that, um, but it's also true, and we shouldn't overlook the fact that Americans are contributing mightily um, to this war themselves. Something like a third of the men of Massachusetts uh, you know, put on uniforms and leave the colony of Massachusetts to fight in the French and Indian Wars. That's mm-hmm. an incredible degree of mobilization. Yeah, great point.
1: Yeah, I guess I was, I was trying to suggest that from the British point of view, they thought the Americans, right? Had, yeah, but that's sure. their point about the, the, uh, the, the, the cost and the, and and, and the um, effort from American colonists during that war was was significant as well. So we've got a couple of great questions coming in. Um, one, one's just a clarification. Sarah asked, could you repeat the, your numbers on those taxes again,
2: Rob? I yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think my source is the uh, Blackwell Companion to the American Revolution. They have a, a great article on, uh, on on sort of finance. Um, in there, and the number for 1763 is 384,000 pounds spent by the British on the American colonies and 1,800 pounds uh, collected in revenue by wow. the British from the American colonies. Wow. Okay. Amazing.
1: Yeah, quite a difference. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you wonder why they persisted, and of course, I guess the answer is, well, they did back off occasionally, right, in the light of some of these
0: things. Sure. Sure. But, um, yeah, and that's one of the interesting things, I think, too. One of the other um, questions that popped up here in the chat box um, was one that asked about uh, the, the continuity or the, the turnover yeah, yeah. in British administrations with prime ministers, um, because as Rob noted, I mean, this is – the British tried a lot of different things to try to raise revenue from the colonists, and the one thing they had in common was really none of them worked. I mean, the Stamp Act was a complete failure from the standpoint of raising any substantial revenue. Uh, the Townsend duties were, at best, partially successful. But again, I mean, these were not the kinds of measures developed in the kinds of ways that could really generate a revenue from the colonies anywhere close to what the British needed. So it's true that the the British backed down and repealed the Stamp Act, later repealed the Townsend duties except the one on T, and there's the changeover from Grenville to Townsend to North, on and on and on. But the one problem, the one constant for the British is, they had the problem after 1763 of how to gain more revenue to pay for the war debt and to pay for the ongoing cost of administering the colonies. And that was a problem they could just never, ever solve. Every measure they tried failed at its most basic level. I mean, a revenue measure is designed to gain revenue. And when revenue measures don't do that, they are failures, in addition to being incredibly unpopular and driving away the colonies. And as as Rob noted. they, within about a dozen years, the British lost the great prize they had won in North America. Um, and this is one of the classic examples of irony and unintended consequences that are so, so typical, uh, throughout, throughout history.
1: Yeah, oh, that was a great point. Hey, kind of a related question that since you, since you brought that, I was going to bring that question up too, Todd, I'm glad you did, but maybe a related question is somebody asked about the effect of salutary neglect, uh, in the years preceding, um, the change that happens after 1763. Um, so, how does how does that affect? I guess maybe what I'm working toward is this sort of split in in the minds of Englishmen living in America and, and Englishmen who are who are living back in England.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I mean the salutary neglect, in some ways, I guess and some scholars are arguing, is kind of in the minds of the beholder. It's sort of a great way to to summarize in a general sense how the uh, how Parliament and how the British treated the American colonists prior to 1763, but of course that also sort of leaves out the idea that there was a fair amount of regulation, obviously, concerning trade, concerning commerce. Uh, the, the various stages and, and implementations of the Navigation Acts did very much control where Americans could trade, how they could trade, where they could go, which markets were open. So it's not as if the um, the colonists were left alone, neglected in that sense. Um, although it is certainly very, very true that there was no effort to um, impose external taxes on them of the kind that you saw after 1765, and really almost no effort, uh, almost no effort to meddle in colonial affairs prior to that time. But, but certainly there is enough of a change in British policy, being hands-on, and as Rob said, coming into your pocket and taking your money. that that changed after 1763 to really make it very, very clear that there was a huge difference in in behavior. So if salutary neglect is maybe not a a, a perfect uh, or perfectly apt description of what happened prior to 1763, it's very, very clear there was a change uh, after that date uh, in British policy toward the colonists. And that's one of the reasons why the colonists reacted as they did, because this was so new and so foreign, and they couldn't understand how they, as good, loyal British subjects um, could could be uh, uh, treated this way or in their minds mistreated this way nice. so I mean in many ways I guess loyalists in seventeen sixty three seventeen sixty four included nearly everybody in the colonies the American colonies but that the pool of people who considered themselves loyalists kept shrinking after that uh, in many ways because of British policies obviously and because of the debates that that engendered within the American colonies
2: just mm. oh, just to put, you know, maybe a, an exclamation uh, point after Todd's statement, I, I think, you know, it, it's worth saying, and I'm not the first person to say this, we in America were much better at being British than the people in Britain were. Um, you know, I mean, we, yeah. we really believed the the foundational principles um, that undergird the, the modern British system. Um, the principles of 1688 were the principles that, that, were the basis, the foundation of our argument. And so, you know, in the run-up to the American Revolution, um, in, the, in the decade or so before 1776, we felt like we were the British patriots. We felt like yeah. we were the people who were essentially holding up, you know, the British Constitution and saying, we need to live according to, to, to this, you know, set of principles. And, uh, and, and so the people we considered to be um, in a state of betrayal to Great Britain were oftentimes the people in control of Parliament. Now, now that's a great point. I'm often struck by how strongly uh,
1: so many people we think of as patriots start making the argument uh, that they, in fact, are the, the, the true Englishmen. The people in England have deviated from their own constitutional traditions, um, not just stretching back to 1688, but I know, I, I, I know there's a, quite a few writings going all the way back to their Saxons' foundations, right? sure. Uh, Jefferson, I think, in the summary view in 74 mentions uh, the the traditions of British constitutionalism stretching from their Saxon origins. Uh, There are a number of other writings. So yeah, that argument that that we're the true Englishmen, we're the ones who are sticking to the true principles of English constitutionalism uh, becomes really prominent uh, at the time. So so that raises another question maybe we can talk about now or at some point. um, What arguments did the other side make to, to say we're the true uh, sort of heirs and preservers of British constitutionalism. And um, I also want to point out there a number of you guys have both raised some interesting questions in your descriptions of things. A number of good questions having to do with sort of hypotheticals. Uh, uh, James asked, what if the colonists had been given their rep- representation in parliament? Uh, would that really have given that much of a say, uh, but wouldn't have taken away uh, one of the arguments that the rebels or patriots were prominently ma- or consistently making. And um, Ray asked, what do you think the British could have done? What adjustments could they have made to hold on to the colonies? So a couple of big questions have been raised uh, by your by both of your descriptions of these things. So thoughts on any of that?
0: Well, it's a great question to ask, you know how you know could the British have avoided this this uh, dilemma uh, of pushing the colonies away? Um, and it's, it's in many ways hard to see how, um, because of their understanding of the British Empire and the supremacy of Parliament, uh, which would simply not um, jibe with the idea of the colonial legislatures, as they later stated, being the equal of Parliament. And one of the documents we, we can talk about in a little bit is that uh, the Joseph Galloway plan of union that right. states very clearly that there will be colonial legislatures... Uh, and Parliament but he says their relation to Parliament will be quote an inferior and distinct branch of the british legislature uh, um, and again that's that's the loyalist cool. position that's also the 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 english position but I, but again i, I think uh, again I think that the um the British position there is really um, a very striking one that just doesn't allow for the kind of of um recognition of colonial rights and power to tax or legislate or anything else that the colonists could be comfortable with, mm. that, that would fit with their understanding of what rights uh, English citizens had. So I think given that, given that problem, the idea of having, um, I mean, this idea of virtual representation to answer the other question, I think, uh, that's something that made sense to, to Great Britain. And if you believe the parliament represents for the entire empire across the globe, then the colonists fit in there. But the colonists said, no, 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 we should have actual representation. That's not something that the, the British were ever willing to do and really couldn't do that without making a, an enormous concession. So uh, it, it's hard to see, I think, in many ways how this coming split could have been avoided. I mean, maybe it would have come a little earlier, a little later, but I, I don't know, given all the factors in play, that, uh, that it really could have been avoided uh, for very long.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I was going to make. It, it's almost un, that distinction is unavoidable given the simple geographical and political circumstances of the fact that you have British in a motherland and and people who claim to be British in a colony, right? That hmm. that motherland or homeland uh, colony distinction seemed to be unavoidable, Did it? So, at one point, did Americans um, or British and American in the American colonies initially did they did anybody make the argument that that the Parliament should should uh, legislate for for um, for Great Britain proper and the colonial legislature
2: should be able to legislate for for the colonies did anybody ever make
1: that distinction
2: I mean many many people made that distinction um, you know Todd sort of alluded to it earlier but the w- when they looked at uh, taxes what they objected to were internal taxes taxes that aims you know, specifically at raising revenue from the American colonists. They thought that only their own parliaments, their own colonial assemblies should have that power. What they didn't object to um, were British measures that were, that sometimes used taxes as a tool for regulating trade within the empire. You know, once, once you got out into the ocean, once you got beyond the borders of the colonies, um, the colonists accepted that, yes, this was the rightful realm um, for, for parliament to act. So, I have to say, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree with uh, with the two of you about the inevitability of all of this. I mean, I think that had we maintained the status quo that we had enjoyed prior to the French and Indian War, um, that it would have been possible for the colonies to remain um, in, in a relationship with Great Britain. Um, it might have been po- possible, too, uh, say in 1764, for Joseph Galloway's plan of union to have been accepted. I'm not sure that it would have been. Um, we know, you know that Ben Franklin had a plan of union that he proposed in 1754 um, that would have united the colonies um, in a very loose way with a very you know, uh, minimal extra layer of government that would allow them to coordinate um, you know, their, their militias, to help better um, project the, in, the interests of the British Empire, and to jointly negotiate treaties of trade with Native American nations. Um, And and the colonies were not excited about that. They didn't want to give up any of their autonomy. So I'm not saying that Galway's 1774 plan of union would have been a slam dunk in 1764, but I think it would have been at least imaginable. Um, And uh, I I should point out too, if people are scratching their heads, I don't believe that Galway's plan of union was one of the four documents that they were asked to read, but it immediately follows the four documents you were asked to read um, in the documents and debates. Uh, volume. So, um, essentially, it, it, it calls for this union of the colonies underneath the British Parliament, but it it lays out, you know, exactly what our various responsibilities will be. Galway, you know, is proposing this to the Continental Congress in 1774. He's going to end up being a loyalist. Um, okay. but just by reading this, this document and this plan of union, by no means is it clear. Um, that he is not going to be a patriot. I'll, I'll say one other thing, Chris, in, in response to an earlier hypothetical question. Um, is there any way that the British could have kept us uh, within the empire if they had given us you know, representation? I assume that the representation that they would offer would be proportional. And if that were to be the, the case, then, then perhaps Americans would have accepted that offer. Um, But they would have accepted it knowing, as Ben Franklin did, I mean, he did the math, that it was only a matter of time um, for for us to outnumber the people of Great Britain. And so the empire essentially would have transferred from one side of the Atlantic to the other. I don't think the British ever had any intention of doing that. And even if they did, I think you would still find many people in America saying that it's just not practical um, for us to be represented on the other side of the ocean the amount of time it takes for information to cross to go back and forth and the propensity for Americans, let's say, to go native if they were to reside in London and lose touch with, I mean, you know, we hear about this about politicians today, they go off to Washington DC and they they forget about where they come from. Um, I think, you know, that, that would have been an objection as well. So we can't definitively say um, that there was no alternative or that this was inevitable. Um, But I do think that, um, Certainly, we know what did happen, and uh, with 2020 hindsight, the British course of action really seems self-defeating. Can I ask, in light of that, that's all fascinating. Can I
1: ask, in light of that, another question? Uh, you, and Candy's question made me think of this. She mentions um, uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, summary view, and, um, and, and the, the line that he um, puts in there about uh, being a free British inhabitant uh, where's your question? She mentions that on page 68, uh, Jefferson reflects on being a free British inhabitant with the right to leave
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, by chance or not, cho- uh, not so on and so forth. Right. And, and Kennedy suggests that this is kind of one of Jefferson's subtle, um, uh, maybe not so subtle, but sort of proddings of the king to remind the king that, uh, uh, you know, that, that there's a lot more at stake here. But I'm mean, trying to be clear here for a second. Do people like Jefferson and others really want representation in Parliament? Um, I mean, it seems to me, that, again, when you read that uh, summary view by Jefferson, um, he's not calling for separation, and he's doing his best to make himself sound like a good British subject, right? But my suspicion, maybe both of you who are very familiar with Jefferson, written on Jefferson, can say whether you think Jefferson really, really wanted parliament uh, or representation uh, in parliament, or, or would that have sort of potentially pulled the rug out from his ultimate goal of, of, of separation and independence, if in fact that was his ultimate goal? I guess my question is, what did Jefferson want out of all of this? <laughs> what did he want to
0: happen? <laughs> Todd, do you want to go first? Well, I was, I was going to say, actually, Rob should take this. Rob has written, as people may know, a great book called Confounding Father which is about Thomas Jefferson uh, and I think it's recently out in paperback as well. So it's uh, not, not particularly expensive, but it's a great book and a great read And So Rob has really studied very closely Thomas Jefferson and his revolutionary thinking. Um, So I've got a few things I would like to add to this, but I want to hear from Rob first, actually. Yeah, uh,
2: You're such a great great friend, not only to uh, give me the question, but to plug my book. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Yeah. So, so I guess, Whenever you would hear just about anyone saying "no taxation without representation," um, the part that they really meant was no taxation. <laughs> they weren't calling for representation. They were quite happy with the system that they had been enjoying, you know, for for dozens of decades. Yeah. And uh, you know, when Jefferson writes the summary view, uh, it is in some ways a statement of loyalty, but it's clearly. A thinly veiled threat as well. And, you know, for me, the most stirring part of that document is when he writes about the origins of uh, what would become the British North American colonies. And he points out that, you know, it's, it's not like the Apollo 11 moon landing where, you know, the United States taxpayer through the United States government, you know, funded this expedition to plant the flag on the moon. Um, you know, Jamestown, Plymouth, these were private ventures organized voluntarily by, by you know, corporations. And um, as Jefferson points out on page 69, uh, America was conquered and her settlements made and firmly established at the expense of individuals and not of the British public. Their own blood was spilt in acquiring lands for their settlement. Their own fortunes expended in making that settlement effectual. For themselves they fought, for themselves they conquered, and for themselves alone they have right to hold. In other words, we founded ourselves and we voluntarily extended our loyalty to the British crown. But because (laughs) we voluntarily decided to be loyal to the British crown, that means that we can voluntarily withdraw that loyalty from the British crown. But even that that argument's pretty radical, right? I mean, even
1: at the time that it's made. Sure, sure. I mean, it seems radical, um, but that's an amazing argument. Todd, you said, thank you, thank you, Rob. Todd said he wanted to A a couple of
0: things. I I think it's very important here to note the um, the chronology of when this comes and what the summary view does and doesn't do. I mean, it's clearly not a declaration of independence. Uh, However, it does define often very sharply, as Rob noted, um, the American position. And that's one of the things about this document that I think is striking too: the number of times that American appears as an adjective in this to, Mm -hmm. to describe something. Uh, There are references, I'll just look at a few things I've circled, Um, American story, American public, American states, American affairs, American art, uh, sort of on and on. I mean, all of these are Jefferson's way of describing something that is unique to a people, even if there's not yet an American nation. And I think he's he's very clearly defining what I think in many ways had been what Americans had long thought were in fact, British principles that the British seem to have been moving away from.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: he's trying to, uh, in this summary view, uh, redefine these as American positions and American principles and American ideas. Um, but it does show, I think, very clearly how, uh, in summarizing American public opinion, uh, if we can take it as a, as a summary view of that, by uh, August of 1774, there's not yet the move to independence. I mean, the war has not started yet. And of course, Payne's common sense won't come until January of 76, and then the Second Continental Congress, and then independence. Um, In one of the the later uh, paragraphs here, I think there's a a key phrase that Jefferson uses that sort of blows out of the water uh, a document that will come a month later, which is Galloway's plan of union, where Jefferson writes, um, this is in the paragraph that begins, that these are our grievances we have thus laid before his majesty. Uh, A few lines further down from that, Jefferson writes, let no act be passed by any one legislature which may infringe on the rights and liberties of another, Mm -hmm. which again seems to be very clearly a way of equating the Virginia House of Burgesses, the Massachusetts Assembly, the New York legislature with Parliament. So that's a conception of empire that the British will clearly never accept. Uh, They have rejected that. They cannot accept that and still keep their idea of the empire together. Uh, And so I think Jefferson here is is less declaring independence, but more, even more so, I think, just spelling out uh, principles and ideas and summarizing where Americans are. There is still hope, and there will obviously be hope even as late as the Olive Branch petition, late in 1775, that the colonists can somehow go over the head of parliament to the king and say to the king, you know, look, get rid of your corrupt ministers, let's, you know, we love you. You know, we know you you want us to succeed. Can't we just find some way to get get around parliament? And of course, the king is unwilling to do that. So, I mean, I think this is a, a key document, but I think it's a great document to think about because it doesn't do what the declaration does, obviously. It also doesn't do what common sense does, but it does, I think, kind of lay the groundwork for that. And it suggests again, why every single year, and I think in some degree, almost every single month, between 74 and 76 is really crucial to the events that will bring about the revolution. That's great. And just for clarification, so that uh, Jefferson's summary
1: view, my understanding correct that that is a draft um, of, well, Jefferson wrote that to the uh, delegates in Congress from Virginia as a suggestion for what they should write or what they should put before the king, should they Put together some sort of petition or some sort of list of grievances.
2: Is that the context context of that document? Do either of you know? That was it's my understanding. Of, it's kind of an interesting story, Chris. I mean, you know, Jefferson was was famously a bad public speaker, and right. you know, he, he wrote this as a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia, um, and you know, this was going to be uh, his suggestion that the the Burgesses approve this and okay. send it, you know, to to uh, to Congress, um, but. As he, you know, was riding toward Williamsburg, um, he was stricken with uh, dysentery, and
0: so he gave he
2: gave the draft to a messenger and sent it forward. And he turned around um, and went back home. And uh, you know, I mean, I think it's at least possible that the fact that it wasn't, you know, Jefferson standing there reading this to the uh, to the House of Burgesses, but instead someone else that uh, you know might result in the fact that. Uh, it received the attention that it did, even though it was considered too radical for yeah. the House Burgesses to adopt it.
1: So nothing really directly came out of that in Congress. Although I think you, as Todd was suggesting, I think you can see sort of tones of it that come out later in the Olive Branch peti- petition, which I think Jefferson also helped draft, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I may be wrong about that. But uh, but then I'm thinking also about the, the later declaration of the causes and necessity of taking up arms, where you see some of the some of this language, I think, at least in tone or spirit, emerge. But of course, by that point, the shooting had started, so it's a, a different set of circumstances. But I want I, uh, it's, it's, this is all great, um, really fascinating. There's a quick follow-up to a point that you made earlier, uh, Rob, um, uh, where you were saying that the, um, for some Americans, uh, or some people living in America. Taxation without representation really meant no taxation. Just as a quick follow-up, somebody asked, Scott asked, what was the tax differential between English and Great Britain and the American colonies? Do we know, I mean, was there a big difference? And the second part of this question is, why did Americans feel they should pay less (laughs) in taxes than those living in Great Britain?
2: So, uh I've heard different numbers uh, bandied about, and, you know, I, I wish I could, you know, seize upon those sources and, and quote them to you and, and analyze, you know, where, where they get their, their tabulations. But I've heard that the, ta- like the tax burden upon the average British person was something like 20% of his income. Ours, meanwhile, was much, much lower than that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we believe that there's no reason why we should contribute to the internal maintenance of the British Isles. Um, and I think we also believed that, uh, as free people, we did contribute, um, to the, the French and Indian war. I mean, our, our legislature sent forth, uh, you know, troops, uh, it paid them, it equipped them, it, it put them in uniforms. Um, that was a burden upon us as well. Um, so I, I don't know that there was, you know, much of a, of an argument being made within the colonies for higher taxes. I, you know, okay. you don't really see much of that. <laughs> yeah, right. Fair enough.
1: Um, I was. There were a couple of, we've got so many good questions. Um, uh, maybe Todd, maybe uh, if you wanted to comment on this, uh, a couple of them have to do with the, um, you brought up the Galway plan uh, a couple of times. Um, a couple of questions have to do with the differences between the colonies. And um, one of them asked about the colonies off of East and West Florida uh, why did those, why did they stay so staunchly loyalists? Was this solely economic or was there something more existential, uh, mm-hmm. which is a great word. Uh, and another question had to do with, uh, boy, see if I can find it had to do with, um, uh, this is from Stan where the differences in the creation of the colonies, royal proprietary charters, so on and so forth, too great to develop a true plan of union at this, at this sort of early stage of the revolution, uh, any thoughts on the differences between the colonies and how this affected how we thought about these questions?
0: Yeah, I think early on, I mean, uh, in the in the 17th century, I think those differences, not only in terms of how they were founded, uh, you know, proprietary, royal, whatever else, but just the very different nature of those columns, how they made money, what their economy was based on, who settled there, uh, the degree or lack thereof of internal governing structures. I think all those things made a great difference in the, in the colonies and gave them um, not a tremendous amount in common with each other. Those over time, I think those differences tended to smooth out uh, because of intercolonial trading, as well as um, uh, death rates that began to decline, education rates that began to increase, uh, a settled population that began to grow and, and the establishment of a number of, of internal institutions of all kinds of uh, I mean, political, legal, social, cultural, religious, I think all those things tended to um, minimize to a great degree or at least sand the rough edges off the differences between the colonies so I'm not sure that the the way in which they were founded um, had by the by the time we're talking about here the 1750s and 60s and 70s all that big a difference uh, between the colonies at least where it couldn't prevent um, collective action of some kind um, mm-hmm. but I think again that the, the bigger concern was was again where did the colonists fit within the British Empire And the question about the Florida is I don't know anything. I don't have a specific answer to that, but I I would bring up another key point here that that scholars have certainly emphasized, and that is the intense interest of European nations, not just the British in North America. The French had obviously been defeated, Mm -hmm. but the Spanish had an enormous interest and presence in North America.
1: Oh, that's a great point. Uh,
0: And so you've got this sort of imperial battle. I mean, we tend to think, and actually for a long time, The historical scholarship actually tended to reflect this idea that it was very much the British versus the American colonists. And that's all there was in the world at that time. And of course, we know um, it was very much the case that there were other nations, other empires, other um, economic interest in North America, other uh, military interest in North America, other settlements in North America, plus, of course, still uh, fairly sizable groups of Native Americans. So those were all some of the various factors going on that sort of complicated the picture. Uh, And I think that sort of broader imperial understanding of North America and what happened um, may well explain why people in different areas were pulled one way or another or had, you know, conflicted loyalties or divided loyalties uh, or things like that. It's a very, very messy reality, I think, as as history. uh, I think Rob would probably agree with this. History is usually pretty messy. I mean, we tend to define it and explain it in, in ways that make sense, and I think the explanation of the revolution as being this this battle between patriots and loyalists, th- that's a part of it, obviously, but but there's a lot more that's going on, and I think the the fuller understanding is is something that historians, you know, to this day are still writing about and thinking about uh, and still uh, considering the, the various impact of, of all these different angles and things that are pushing on Joseph Galloway and on Thomas Jefferson and on... Um, these revolutionary crowds that are turning out and drinking toast uh, to the empire, I mean there, there's a lot going on that they're aware of that we sometimes
2: uh, tend to forget about or minimize but was very, very real to them that was a great, think, great, I, great, great point. point I think that is exactly right, and I, I love his comment about uh, you know history being messy. I think you could imagine <laughs> a hilarious comedy routine um, called the obsessive compulsive historian uh, <laughs> <laughs> very very difficult. Um, <laughs> But I'll, I'll just add one one thing more. Um, you know, when we think about the British North American colonies, we tend to focus, obviously, on the thirteen that joined hands and declared independence together in 1776. Um, but of course, there's also Canada, um, and there are also the British possessions in the Caribbean. And uh, it's worth pointing out that you know one reason why I think we don't see the same interest in resistance from the British Caribbean colonies is that. Um, They had uh, an enslaved population that outnumbered the white population uh, on average by a factor of four to one. On some islands, it was as many as 16 or 18 to one. And when you consider that in the Caribbean, they're harvesting sugarcane and that you harvest sugarcane with a machete, um, you can understand why, you know, British people living in the Caribbean wouldn't want to rock the boat and, uh, and, and, you know, bring about any additional instability. That's a great point, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that ties into Governor Morris's comment too. I mean, he, I think he's less worried about violence necessarily, but just about this—what's he call it—the unfeeling, the unthinking mob. They begin to, you know, come out in the sun and and ride around <laughs> like a snake or something. But that, that that same sort of thing is if we stir this up, uh, we're really stirring up something that we may not be able to control. You know, whoever we is, whether it's Parliament or elites in the colonies. Yeah,
2: this, yeah. I love how he uses this term. Uh, instead of nobility, he refers to the mob as the mobility, the (laughs) mobility. And and it's, and it probably brings us to another point. I mean, Todd mentioned earlier that there was this transition from people considering themselves Whigs to considering themselves Republicans. That is people who are not monarchists. Um, I think we're we're not yet at the point where many Americans transition to small D Democrats. Um, In other words, democracy, as we understand it, and a, and a, Large scale trust and faith in the will of the people is something that is just beginning to emerge um, in 1774. And that, you know, many people still are, are very much uh, concerned that um, it is important to have a balanced constitution where um, some people, people who own property and who are self sufficient and able to support themselves and be mentally and economically independent, where they would have a voice. Um, but there aren't many people at this point. Um who are arguing for things like you know universal suffrage even even just for white men um that's still the ways off mm. all great points,
1: yeah, so a lot of factors to that go into this uh, this question um and that and, and on that messiness of the thing that reminds me there were a a couple of questions um Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, uh, Somebody wrote, I I get the sense from the readings that a person can be both a patriot and a loyalist. Um, Do you think that this is a struggle that the men of the time fought about with themselves perhaps? Um, And I I raise that because um, it seems like in this, uh, there must've been quite a a number of people that were sort of torn very deeply over this question, right? So we tend to think, well, they're the patriots and the loyalists. And they're and they're separate, but there must have been a lot of people that were that thought they could be both or struggled to be both somehow and maybe reconcile the two. And it calls to mind. I don't know that we actually recommended these readings or the the reading by Gage, by the way. I think
2: mm-hmm. that's
1: in the reader, which I think is also really interesting and 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 worth reading. Uh, somebody mentioned Edmund Burke's attempts in Parliament. That's not part of the readings, but Edmund Burke uh, tried to to to. Um, you know, bring about a kind of reconciliation between the way the, the British mind worked and the and the American mind worked. So, can either of you comment on? I guess um, you know. I guess what I'm hoping for is maybe how, especially how did the those who chose to stay loyal uh, to 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 the British um, um, government, if you will, how did they work through um, some of these issues, or vice versa?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, that leads us to one of the, I guess, kind of one of the summarizing points about this, this whole webinar is, you know, how do we today think about the loyalists? How do we understand them? Um, okay. And one way to think about them uh, is to see them as, as tragic figures in many ways, that they were people who did their best to be loyal to an idea and to a system that was changing before their very eyes in ways they didn't fully understand. Um, Bernard Balin, the early American historian, is a famous book from 1975, I think it is, called The Ordeal of Thomas Hutchinson, the royal governor of Massachusetts. Uh, and it's a very sympathetic book because he really tries to understand why would someone be a loyalist and why would someone persist in that kind of behavior? Uh, and it's, it's again, I think it's a, it's a very sympathetic book that sort of sees Hutchinson's case as being tragic. He's just not able to make that mental leap into something different that he's known. And I, I think the loyalists, if we think about them, uh, they clearly lost in the, in the revolution. They lost their property. They were forced to flee to Canada, to Nova Scotia. Um, but they've also really never had a revival, if you will. I mean, uh, if we think about this as being the first American Civil War, you can make the argument, as scholars have done, that the uh, Confederates in 1861-65 the, the rebels of the second American Civil War have been treated far better retrospectively than the Loyalists have.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's,
0: there's a lot that goes on, obviously, with, with race and slavery connected to that. But there's also been, I think, a, a kind of reconciliation, that famous 1913 um, attempt to unite Confederate and Union armies at Gettysburg and sort of have a reconciliation between the regions of the veterans who fought it at Gettysburg. That suggests a real way to To try to recombine and bring people back together. I'm not sure the loyalists have ever really been um, united or reunited in some way or written back into the American story. And I think that's one of the things that uh, I think complicates our our way of how do we think about them today? How do we teach about them? Uh, For those of us who, who, as I think all of us do, teach, teach classes on the revolution, how do we think about them? How do we fit them into the story? And what do we do with them? I mean, they're clearly dissenters in the revolutionary conflict. But is there some way of, uh, you know, fitting them back in or do we just sort of write them off as, you know, bizarre and, and on the wrong side? So I think the, the Balin approach was to sort of take them seriously and, and sympathetically and to sort of see this as a, a tragedy of sorts. Uh, and, and that's one way of getting at it, but it's, it's clearly not the only way.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I agree. It is such a tragedy for the loyalists. Um, they want so much to believe that Great Britain will come to its senses and yeah. embrace the principles for, you know, that caused them to love Great Britain in the first place. I mean, in in a sense, they don't disagree with the patriots on anything um, except about the necessity of jumping ship and uh, establishing our own independent government. And it's really tragic. You know, you brought up, uh, Chris, the the Olive Branch petition, uh, which, you know, John Dickinson took lead in writing. And he, of course, you know, is in 1775 and 1776, certainly not on the side of independence. Um, and, you know, he's given this task. Okay, write a petition directly to the king pleading with him um, to recognize our rights. And Dickinson, you know, accepts this task and sends it uh, to the king, and the petition is, is rebuffed. Uh, the British don't even want to consider anything that comes from this extra-legal body, the Continental Congress. They don't even recognize its legitimacy. So uh, of all the enemies of the loyalists, I think you can make the argument um, that that ultimately the, the greatest and the most devastating was the British government itself, mm-hmm. um, and and to find ourselves in a state of war with Great Britain even before independence um, seriously undermines the Loyalist case. Um, yeah. And you know one thing we haven't mentioned uh, is you know I think maybe once or twice the the term has come up, but we haven't discussed the Coercive Acts or the Intolerable Acts as they were known. And you know these are passed in response to the Boston Tea Party. Um, in early 1774, and, and they shut down Boston Harbor, they outlaw uh, local town meetings in Massachusetts, they make it so that the Massachusetts uh, legislature can't meet except to discuss how to pay back the British for the, the tea that was thrown overboard. When you can't make laws under which you live, you're not an Englishman. Um, you know, people oftentimes in this period would say that the British are trying to enslave us. They would compare um, our treatment to that of, of people who were enslaved. You also see people at this point saying that the British are treating us not like Englishmen, but like Irishmen, like a conquered people, as if we are in a state of war with them. In fact, Patrick Henry in 1774 said, we are in a state of nature. In other words, um, it's almost as if the British government has declared independence from us and no longer performs the essential functions of a government, protecting rights to life and liberty and property and is now, you know, like a barbarian in the state of nature, uh, you know, putting those rights in danger and under attack. So I feel sorry for the loyalists because uh, they really wanted to believe that the British government would come around and see the light. And ultimately, um, it was the British government that that disappointed them more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty, pretty. Point- I'm glad you brought up Dickinson too. I was going to bring up Dickinson. I'm glad you did because I get I that the
1: question comes up in, in uh, my uh, when I teach the American founding course well you know was Dickinson a loyalist or a patriot um and to straddle both of those views uh very carefully sorry Todd I didn't mean to cut you off you wanted to jump in I think on
0: no I was just going to say I, I think Rob made some some really good points there about that and, and I think again what all this points up is just how it's it's very important to pay attention to to change over time during this decade uh, for a decade plus, from 1763 to 1776. Uh, right. there's, there's a lot that changes on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think as you go through the process, then the, the sides really harden. I mean, the, the, the American patriot side begins to coalesce and harden around certain key ideas. And every time there's a source of conflict, a new law, a new regulation, uh, the, the, the protest by the, the colonists, especially in Massachusetts, every time you have an incident of that, it tends to further uh, polarize and harden those sides. And at a certain point, it becomes difficult to sit down and talk honestly and openly, you might say, without the knowledge on both sides of everything that has transpired in the previous year or two years or five years or 10 years. And I think that cumulative effect of, of that change over time itself contributes to perceptions and the way that people think about these questions on both sides of the Atlantic. So I think it's a it's a It's a vast issue, and I think it's um it's something that again uh we're what two hundred plus years uh since this event two hundred and forty some years after the event and there's still how many books every year appear in the American Revolution in fact there's some some great recent books that I haven't um read or read all of yet by um uh people like Robert Parkinson, the Common Cause and Eric Nelson the Royalist Revolution and um Justin Rivage. I think it is called Revolution. Uh, against Empire, I think is the title. So uh, some, some really good recent work that just suggests how fresh and new and always vital these kinds of things are for early American historians. Yeah,
1: fantastic points. We're, we're rapidly approaching the end of our time. Here's an interesting question uh, from Candy, who asks, this may be a strange question, but she asks about Franklin and his son, another interesting case of uh, a patriot, a loyalist, um, why didn't his son step away from what he could surely see was about to take place? Does anybody know, uh, have any insight on Franklin and his and the situation that split between his son? I'm sure both of you do, but, <laughs> or is this just a case of, again, just sort of summarizing some of the distinctions we've been making, right? I mean, Franklin makes a decision that the, 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 the cause of the, the Patriot cause is, is, mm-hmm. is the right cause. Um, it, his son Sees the British Empire uh, or, or remaining loyal to the British government um, uh, a matter of not just necessity, perhaps, but also, is, again, the right thing to do. Um, any thoughts on, uh, on the, the, the Franklin situation? Or?
0: Well, I think it just shows how divisive these questions could be within families, because yeah. the Franklin family was obviously not the only one that was split by this, but it was not a matter of this group and that group. It sometimes divided families against each other in this way.
1: Yeah, Stan mentions Governor Morris. I think and his family were also divided. That raises uh, another question uh, about the, um, the. I wanted to ask about the treatment of loyalists in America, if you don't mind. Um, did the treatment of loyalists by patriots change after the shooting started in 1775? How were how were people who were, again loosely understood, loyalists treated or viewed? Um, uh,
2: before and after the, the, the shooting actually started in 1775. So uh, Todd brought up Rob Parkinson's great book, uh, The Common Cause. And, you know, one of the, the central arguments that Rob Parkinson makes is one of the ways that we forged unity among the American patriots was by establishing, you know, who the others were, who was outside of our circle. And obviously, um, you know, loyalists were a, a prime target to be outside of that circle. And and the, the mistreatment of them, um, I, I suppose, and I suppose you could describe it that way, uh, began maybe long before independence, uh, when people resisted um, efforts to protest the Stamp Act or the Townsend duties, for example, people who um, collaborated with the British, people who um, agreed to pay their taxes, people who uh, didn't um, observe boycotts of taxed goods would oftentimes be um, ostracized or shunned. People would refuse to do business with them. You know, sometimes you would see people hanged in effigy. Sometimes you would see people tarred and feathered. Um, So it wasn't easy um, to stand outside of the circle of, and and I think it was a growing circle of of American patriots who were highly critical of British policy. Um, And then finally, after 1776, so critical that, you know, they were willing to declare independence from Britain itself. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not for no reason that so many loyalists are going to decide that they need to pick up and move and, you know, go to Canada or go back to great Britain. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, these categories are fluid and that a lot of people who consider themselves, you know, in, in 1763, 100% of the American population, I think it's fair to say there might be a rounding error, but was, was, you know, in the loyalist camp by 1783, when the war for independence came to a close, a much smaller percentage was in the Loyalist camp. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the process of conversion, um, and people converted for a whole bunch of different reasons, uh, sometimes out of principle, I think oftentimes out of principle, oftentimes out of uh, you know, the experience of observing British imperial policy or observing during the war British troops who did not seem like they were protecting us, but instead seemed like they had come to conquer us. Um, Certainly, there were people who uh, essentially raised the white flag and decided that they were going to quiet down and accept the status quo and try to get along peacefully with their neighbors, and um, and that's how they ended up on the Patriot side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I also didn't, um, there were some efforts, I believe, especially
1: by Washington, kind of as a military uh, necessity, to, to grant amnesty to certain loyalists. Was this in New Jersey in particular? Uh, as a sort of a campaign measure, wasn't Washington in favor of, of sort of granting amnesty to loyalists as a way to sort of win over their loyalty to the new United States and lure them away from the British? I seem to recall reading something about that, and there was a lot of opposition to that, if I remember correctly, in Congress. And, um, when when Washington suggested that um, that we should welcome the loyalists, show them show them that they can be part of our sort of new you know American family. Um, uh, um, uh, but anyway, I, I mentioned that perhaps in part to show just how divisive, again, this this issue remained uh, through, through the revolution. But
2: uh, Well, you know, I, I can speak to a, a subsequent case immediately after the war for independence when the British evacuated New York City, there was the question about, you know, what, what to do with the loyalists who remain behind, who don't leave with the British, and uh, especially what to do with their property. Um, And this came up, you know, not only in New York, uh, but in in Virginia and other places. And these colonies, uh, now states, were strapped for cash. And uh, many looked at loyalist property as a potential source of, of, you know, revenue and a way to finance the war. Um, Alexander Hamilton, I think to his credit, uh, after the war in New York, um, pushed back really hard against plans to confiscate loyalist property um, and was trying to make the argument that, you know, Property rights, among other things, you know, were why we fought this this war in the first place. And if these people are going to remain among us, and if these people are going to be um, able to, you know, join our ranks uh, as as patriots, you know, we need to make sure that we respect their rights as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think
0: just very briefly, one of the great movements that begins even before the revolution is is over, the war and the revolution is over, is an attempt to try to contain the revolution. And that's particularly true on the part of people who became federalists in the debate over the Constitution, and certainly among people like Hamilton, like Governor Morris, who were also federalists in the 1790s. They're really trying to roll this back and say, you know, no, it's about independence, it's about separation, but it's not about this sort of vast democratizing uh, of the country. So there is a real effort, uh, even before the war is over, to try to contain it and limit um, what the revolution was and was not about. Wow.
1: That's a that's fascinating point. And Todd, I, I the time has just flown by. We're actually over time. But that is a great segue to our next Saturday webinar <laughs> on the great debate, great American debates, uh between Federalists and Anti-Federalists. So I'm, I'm hopefully that will come up in the in our next webinar. But gentlemen, again, we're over and I'm sorry I've kept you longer than 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 planned, but uh I really appreciate your insights into this. I've learned a great deal. I hope others have found this useful. Um, but, but again, thank you very much. was very, very,
2: uh, pleasant and, and thoughtful. Um, It's Always
0: a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it is thank a pleasure.
2: You. Thank you, Chris. And thank Thanks. you, Todd. It was a great conversation. Really yeah. enjoyed
0: it. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: I wish we had
1: another two hours to keep going, but I, I know you're, you're both busy as well. So thank you both again. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. Thanks for submitting great questions. Um, just a quick reminder about the email you'll receive with your link, uh, for a certificate of participation. Um, um one last plug. If you, again, uh, read read both both of these uh, fine scholars' books, they're they're not only full of great information, um, but just great to read, pleasant to read, not um, uh, sort of acutely, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Some people write these overly scholarly, what's the term people use? Eggheaded books or something like that. These guys write great books, both of them, and and they're pleasant to read. So I uh, uh, can't recommend uh, their, their works highly enough. And happy to say that both of them teach regularly in our master's program here at Ashland as, as well. So thanks again, gentlemen. look forward to seeing you both. And uh, whenever it is, we're going to get together in Virginia in October. Yes,
0: that's it. OK,
1: great. So um, one last mention uh, again about our next Saturday webinar. It will be September eighth, And again, we'll be looking at the great American debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists. So hopefully you can join us again then.
0: Until then, take care, and thanks. Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at tah.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.